Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events. The information on this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Here we settle into the murky, tangled, and freaking hard parts of life to restore our relationship with the self so it can ripple out to the people we love, the work we do, and the world around us. We can't fix what's wrong if we can't talk about it. We can't move the conversation forward if we're not willing to be real about where we are now. And unless we push the edges of what it means to connect, nothing will ever change. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong. Every month, I invite a fabulous big thinking guest to join me to talk about what it means to be human together. We'll have deep conversations about the big stuff, life, love, and legacy, and how you can foster connection for yourself. Let's start to reconnect the world, one conversation at a time. Today, I'm joined by Susan Piver, a renowned Buddhist teacher, and a New York Times best-selling author. She's published nine books, including her latest, The Four Noble Truths of Love, Buddhist Wisdom for Modern Relationships. Susan's joining me today to talk about how to survive the inevitable connection, disconnection, connection, disconnection cycles of modern relationships. And she's talking about how she's discovered what she's coined the Four Noble Truths of Love during a rough patch in her own marriage. The truth of it is that relational suffering exposes everything about you. In this conversation, Susan and I are going to be talking about ways that you can soften into yourself and really let yourself be who you are. Let's hop in. I'm really happy to welcome Susan Piver today, the author of Four Noble Truths of Love. Susan, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I would love for you to tell us a little bit about how your work began. I've been a Buddhist practitioner for close to 25 years, and I've been in a relationship for close to 25 years, too, including 20 years of marriage. So I just found it interesting how these two paths connected and how my Buddhist practice really helped me in my marriage. So that's how it came about. I can, as a human, <laughs> see how that stuff connects for myself. I'm curious where in, I know you talk about this a lot in your book, but where in your marriage did you start noticing Buddhist principles really showing up and saying to yourself, this is what I need more of? Well, most of it, the first things I noticed were about working with discomfort because relationships are just uncomfortable. And I found greater tolerance for remaining in the discomfort rather than reflexively trying to resolve it. And I found myself more able to let go of my habitual responses, or not let go of them, but at least notice them, and realize that they were not the only possible responses. So I just noticed increased awareness in general, but in particular in my marriage, around my ideas of what I thought a marriage should look like or a relationship should look like with some sense that, well, maybe that's not the only way to look at it. 
while I was reading your book, this idea about expectations was a really big one. You talk a lot about this where, as you just said, what your idea of what a marriage should look like, right? That's often one of the things that brings us suffering most often in relationships, these expectations, these ideas we have are the things that should be a certain way. Yeah. And of course, we all have expectations. So many. (laughs) And we're entitled to them. But I don't think the expectations are a problem. The problem seems to come in when we pay closer attention to our expectations than the person in front of us. And when we prioritize those expectations, and rather than seeing the person we're relating to as an, at least an equal partner in the course of this relationship, but we rather see them as someone who we have cast in the role of expectation fulfiller, that it just ceases to become love when the expectations rule the day. Because then we're not in relationship with that actual person. We're not actually in the present moment anymore. I agree. We're not even looking at them. We're looking at ourselves. It's a 360 with oneself. Yeah, that's a great reminder. And, and I think it's often one of the hardest parts for many people to get their heads around. There's somebody else there. that there's somebody else there and that often the things that we're struggling with in our relationships are in many ways our projections. It's what we think they should be as opposed to who they've always been. Yeah. And I think it's, I agree completely. And it's good at this point to just remind ourselves and everybody that this doesn't include expectations around abuse or addiction. Those are excluded from this view and I just always, I never want anyone to think, oh, some Buddhist lady said I should, you know, work with my expectations and projections when the source of the pain is someone's addiction or abuse, whether it's yours or someone else's. So those are excluded from this conversation. And I very much appreciate that. I do think that later in our conversation, when we're talking about some of the different poisons that you do talk about in relationships, I think some of those things may also be ways of hiding, ways of just being disconnected from the self. And so in some ways they play in, but they're certainly not to be tolerated. They're certainly stuff that we aren't condoning. Yes. There's a passage that you wrote in this book that I just feel like really holds a nice container for this conversation. And so if it's okay with you, I'd I'd like to read back some of your own words. Sure. You say, love seems custom-made to evoke the deepest woundings and thereby forces you to choose over and over between your puny, fearful self and your heroic genius self. The closer you get to another person, the louder your sorrows shriek, the more frightened you become, the more you scare each other, all resulting in some very weird battles that have nothing to do with what's actually happening. Yeah. It's interesting how... The closer we get to someone, in some ways, the less we see them, and the more we hear or feel or act from our own fears and sorrows, and that's human. I don't know that anyone should think I should stop doing that right now, because it's just human. But to be aware of it is really, really not just useful, it's kind to yourself and kind to the other person to bring awareness to that, because that's the whole deal. And I know I quoted him in the book, John Tarrant Roshi, a Zen priest and poet, who said, awareness is the most basic form of love. 
through it we bless and are blessed. And that's basically, to me, the most important and interesting thing I ever heard anyone say about relationships, that awareness is the currency and the ground. And so to me, that means everything. Coming back to that awareness within the self, and this is, I think, a beautiful way for us also to illustrate and open that conversation around these four truths, because they really do center in many ways around that awareness, don't they? Yes, they do. Would you guide us through what you consider to be these four noble truths of love Yes, and, and how you see them? I'd be delighted, yeah. So the four noble truths of love came to me in a period in my own marriage where it was just really, really not going well, and we could not get along. And I'm sure everybody has had this experience that everything seems okay, and then one day you just, everything you say upsets the other person, and everything they say upsets you. And the simplest things, you know, do you want to go out to dinner, or you know, where should we put this chair? Just those things provoke tremendous arguments. Obviously, it's very unpleasant. And so I was in one of those periods in my own marriage where we couldn't get along. Just day-to-day life seemed impossible. And we just kept making the other one feel completely rejected. And we couldn't figure out why. We even said, oh, look what we're doing. Oh, yeah, we're doing that. But we don't know how to stop. So it went on for months. And at one point, I was sitting at my desk, and I was crying because I was just thinking, it must be over. I thought we loved each other, but maybe it's over. I don't know where to begin fixing this. And I heard a voice, or my own self said to me, I don't know where it came from, I begin at the beginning are Four Noble Truths. And as a longtime Buddhist practitioner, that meant something to me, although I didn't know how they applied to my relationship, but... The Four Noble Truths of Buddhism are the very first teachings given by the Buddha upon his attainment of enlightenment. And so I went through them in my mind. Okay, the first noble truth is the truth. It says life is suffering, although that sounds really horrible. And I've heard that a more appropriate translation of the Sanskrit, I think it's Sanskrit, word dukkha is unsatisfying. Life is unsatisfying because there's nothing to hold on to. Yeah, I was going to say, you talk about this a lot as in uh, grasping. Yeah, that's the second noble truth. The first noble truth is that life is suffering or life is unsatisfying. And the second noble truth is called the cause of suffering, which is grasping, which basically means pretending the first noble truth is not true and trying to create something that you can hold on to that's solid and fixed and unchanging and protective and so on. So that won't work, unfortunately. And, but it's interesting that the cause of suffering is not suffering. In other words, the cause of suffering is not loss and death and sickness and disappointment. Although those things certainly are suffering, but those things are unavoidable. That's part of being human. The cause of suffering in this view is how we respond to it. And that is optional. Grasping is optional. Suffering is not. But grasping is. So this, the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering says you could stop. Basically, you know, oversimplifying vastly, not that you know the cause, you also know the cure. Stop grasping. So, of course, it's not that simple, but the fourth noble truth is the called the Eightfold Path, which are the eight steps that you and I and anyone can take 
to stop grasping, basically, and therefore stop suffering. It includes things like all the rights, right view, right intention, right speech, right livelihood, and so on. So it really breaks it down to these, oh, these are the steps I should take, and then it will, I could stop suffering. Can you define or help expand upon the word right? Because I think for some, that's a word that some get tripped up by. I've sometimes heard it spoken of as like the just or the next. Sure, you can substitute another word if the word right seems judgmental, but I don't mind right personally, but accurate or deep or correct. I just want to kind of give a flavor or an understanding of what that word right typically Mm -hmm. means. It means the kind that will not cause suffering. That's my how I look at it. You know, I find it heartening and inspiring that there's something right and something wrong. That's helpful to me. But I get why any other people might feel like prefer other words. So please choose other ones. There's a practice involved in that discernment that right there. And I find that that's something that it takes time to cultivate and to create space for knowing how to discern and choose the difference between the right or the wrong, the next step. Yeah, I agree. That's why awareness is so important and why it is the most basic form of love, said John Tarrant Roshi, because discernment is the byproduct of awareness. And, you know, I've had many opportunities where I think I'm being discerning, but really I'm responding to my own hopes and fears. But true discernment, as I understand it, is clear seeing and having some sense of being guided by what you see and by your being in the present, as opposed to responding to projections and hopes and fears and so on. So to me, I'm a meditator. I'm a meditation teacher. That seems like a really good, helpful practice when it comes to relationships. But my husband, my partner is not a meditator, not a Buddhist. And so it's not the only way, but yes, I completely agree. Discernment is everything. And I, as you describe the process of awareness, I'm also led to thinking a little bit about how this also leads so much into being able to trust oneself, which mm-hmm. comes back to awareness because it's about knowing oneself and the awareness of what we're thinking and feeling. And Yeah. And that self is not solid. So that self is always changing. So one never gets for better or worse to the point, oh, I know myself that has checked that box. But I mean, we all, that's one of the great benefits of getting older is, you know, well, I don't like doing things this way, or my intelligence works in this setting and not that setting. And those are all really valuable insights and really helpful to anyone you're in a relationship with. For example, in my own relationship, there's a tiny bit of a classical gender reversal in that my husband really likes talking about things. And he really likes doing things together. He genuinely gets more enjoyment out of things when we do them together. I don't like talking about everything. And I genuinely enjoy doing things more by myself. I'm very solitary. And for a long time, I thought there was something wrong with me that his way was preferable, because in our world, it is considered so. But I spent too many years trying to become a different kind of person. And and I also could see it was making him unhappy and it was making me unhappy. I felt like, why is he always in my face? And he felt like, why is she avoiding us and me? And 
but neither of us were correct in our assumption. But having some awareness of just how we operate, our operating system, helped us to just accept ourselves and each other and make room for our differences. I love the way that you're bringing awareness to the cycles and the patterns that you find yourself in. I think so often that is a huge part of my work as a relationship therapist is sitting down with couples and helping them to see the patterns that present and how they present. And I really want to thank you for that beautiful illustration in your own life and in your own relationship of how that plays out and can become something that causes suffering if we're grasping at it. Yeah. And I appreciate that that's a big part of the work you do because it seems like that's so important. And for each to have compassion for the other and not to see the other's behavior as a, you know, a threat, unless it is a threat, really helpful. I find it's very rare that it's actually a threat and more often that it's a misunderstanding. Yes. In my own personal relationship, I found that to be the case too. Me too. In my relationship, I know that sometimes when I'm not bringing my awareness, which does happen into my relationship, I end up in that pattern And that's where I start seeing my partner, my husband, as someone who is hurting me or who I feel hurt by, as opposed to when I'm more aware of the pattern and I'm keeping it in mind, everything feels a lot gentler. And I remember that he's actually standing there beside me and that Mm -hmm. we're not out to get each other. Oh, that's nice. There was something else that you said in your book, and maybe I should let this unfold a little bit more before I come here, but I also think that this kind of falls right into the conversation we're having right now and maybe will lead us backwards a little bit into the unfolding process. You talk about how working on our problems aren't typically the problems, but it's expecting that happiness will come from solving them, that is. Right. That's part of the the second noble truth of love. The first noble truth, by the way, reflecting the four noble truths of the Buddha, the first noble truth of love is that relationships never stabilize. This is made up by me, by the way, so everyone should take it with a grain of salt. The Buddha did not say these things. But they never, I just remember at one point, probably 10 years into my relationship, thinking, oh, it's, we're never going to have clear sailing. We'll have periods of it, but cycles will always arise, abide, and dissolve, and it's never going to stabilize. That is uncomfortable. Well, that's the truth. So that's good that to know. It's just never going to stabilize. Ever. Yeah. There'll be periods of stability. You know, hopefully they'll be long and lovely, but it doesn't stop. You can't freeze. So that was helpful to know. No one ever told me that. And then the second noble truth is the cause of suffering, which is thinking that your relationship should be stable and comfortable. And of course, it's great when they are, but so much comes from thinking, well, here are the problems, as you were saying, and if we solve them, we will be able to create stability and comfort in this relationship. And that is not true. I mean, everybody should work on their problems. I'm not by any means suggesting otherwise and investigate and discuss and get help. And yeah, absolutely. It's good to solve problems. But thinking that they will then exempt you from the cycles of relationship is, you could try it, but it's not likely to happen. In my practice, especially with my clients, often one of the things I tell them is pretty much the only stable thing here is the cycle. And that cycle is often a cycle of connection, disconnection, repair, and growth. 
back to connection, disconnection, repair and growth and knowing that that cycle is going to be ever present in your relationship, just like the seasons and the way the leaves fall off the trees and bud again. And that that perhaps is the only thing you can really count on is that cycle. That's lovely. That must be really helpful for people to hear because we've been sort of indoctrinated with this idea of romantic love as something that protects you from suffering, but it's really something that exposes everything about you. And so that seems to be part of its, I don't know what purpose. It's as if it's, it becomes this container, right? Where if I'm thinking about a really healthy relationship, if I'm thinking about what holds the space for that, if it's exposing everything about me, if it's exposing everything about you, then it would be lovely mm-hmm. <laughs> if it's also a container that is safe to grow in and grow together in. Yeah. The, grow, the container seems with time to become the whole thing rather than any feelings that you have toward each other. I've just really noticed in my own relationship that sometimes I love my husband, sometimes I really don't. And, but it's not, it, we're living in a loving situation, I would say, you know, on good days, where we are in it together. And it seems that there's me, and you probably tell this to your, the people you work with too, there's, I'm in the relationship, he's in the relationship, and the relationship is in the relationship. And that third piece, the relationship, seems to be the part that we are shepherding. Rather than trying to meet each other's needs in ever-deepening ways, it's what do we need? What does this we thing need right now? It's as one of my mentors, Terry Real, talks about relationship mindfulness in this capacity. It's the coming back to the relationship. Yeah, that is a stable thing to come back to as opposed to me or you, which is, yeah, that, that sounds really nice. I wonder, kind of coming back to these noble truths and the fact that, you know, relationships are going to be unstable, that it's all about meeting that instability together. And then it it moves a little bit, right? It moves into that idea of the container. Mm -hmm. You mean, like, what is that? I guess what we're really talking about is how we ride out that instability, how we stay in the relationship, even when things don't feel stable, even when they feel more scary, even when they feel more threatening. Yeah. And I'm not talking like your disclaimer earlier. I'm not talking about threatening as in you're physically or emotionally in harm's way, but threatening as in maybe to the ego. When you feel when it upsets you. Yeah. Yeah. For me, a meditation practice teaches one how to do this, but there are people that can do it without a meditation practice. It means staying with what you feel. When you feel uncomfortable feeling that, basically it usually means in your body, but some people feel these kinds of things in the environment. Like, that's where I feel it, like the environment changes. And then feeling when it starts to lighten or when it dives back in or just noticing how I am feeling. But this is the key, without an agenda. Because normally we think, well, I just want to feel better. And of course, we do. And I hope everyone will feel better. But when we apply mindfulness, quote unquote, or any techniques that are spiritual techniques with the idea of this will make me feel better, which probably it will, but only if you let go of that agenda. So in other words, it's just simple. Like I'm feeling what I feel. 
I'm not trying to manipulate it. I'm not looking for the out. I am trying to divorce it from the storyline, which is the other key. So if I feel hurt, and in addition to feeling that hurt, I explain to myself why I feel that way, or what would get me out of it, or whose fault it is, or it's my fault, it's your fault, that could be useful. But it's not the same thing as feeling. Feeling is in the body or the environment or however it works for you. But when we immediately jump in with the storyline slash agenda, then we've taken, we've derailed the process of metabolization. Derailed the process of metabolization. It's as if we've left our bodies. We've left. We've left. And so it might feel better momentarily, but sometimes it's necessary. You have to leave because things are too intense or too difficult and no one should be unkind to themselves. But usually the objective is I want to feel better, not I want to feel. So this is where you talk about tolerating discomfort and why that's so important. Because you're not always going to be comfortable, but in order to be in relationship, you can't always be comfortable. You have to sometimes just be uncomfortable. Yeah. And then you think, well, I will be with this discomfort because that is the quickest way out. And maybe it is, but it's just the being with that is the teaching and the teacher and the source of guidance rather than whatever else I might come up with. So it's brave and it's hard and it's important and it's at root in a tremendous softening toward yourself that has tremendous consequence. Can you talk more about that softening towards yourself? That's just so rich. It's rare and difficult because I don't know about you, but I am thinking I should be this, I should be that. I'm constantly critiquing my every gesture, my every word, my every glance in the mirror, everything. You're not alone. Okay, thank you. (laughs) There's a judgment, there's critique, there's measuring, there's exhortations and you know just it's a constant barrage of trying to get myself to be a certain way and okay there's there's things I want to accomplish and ways I want to be and so on but rarely do I just let myself be as I am which is what the practice of meditation is that is what you are practicing you're not practicing being good at following the breath or whatever else you're practicing being with yourself as you are. The breath is a kind of anchor, but then you are grumpy, you're happy, you're brilliant, you're bored, you're vicious, all of that is included. So to soften towards yourself means to allow yourself to be as you are with a sense of discovering who you are from moment to moment, rather than trying to mandate who you should be. And that softening is really important in relationships. I was going to say, as you soften to yourself, you also open up space to soften towards your partner. Yeah, they seem to be organically connected. And it doesn't always feel good. So it's not like a formula for happiness, but it is a formula for genuineness. Yes. And receptivity. And receptivity, absolutely. You know, one of the things I often see in relationships are that either, well, that people can really wall off. Not everybody walls off, but some wall off to the point that they don't let others in. Mm -hmm. And in the process of walling off, sometimes not only are they walled off, but they can be angry also. 
And that anger or that rage can be either outwardly directed at their partner or inwardly directed at themselves. And that can be really problematic. And that is where I'm hearing the softening is that maybe it's not so much in the wall at this point, but we're talking about where that aggression is going. And if we're able to soften towards ourselves, we're also able then to soften towards our partners, that it's really the same continuum of feeling just either inwardly or outwardly expressed. Yeah, I agree. I'd like to add that softening doesn't mean feeling good or feeling like, oh, I'm great, or this is nice, or it's okay. It doesn't mean any of that. In fact, it means the opposite. It means full-on human everything. It means feeling more. Feeling more edge, more grit, more softness, sweetness, more everything. And in the Buddhist view, one of the reasons this softening is so important, this is very interesting to me when I learned this from a wonderful woman teacher named Pema Khandro Rinpoche. She said, it's important to work with your own mind because the closer you get to others, the more your minds mix. And especially when you're in an intimate relationship, like the boundary gets diffuse. So you're kind of not quite sure where you leave off and the other person begins your minds mix, as I said. So when they do, the way you talk to yourself is more likely to bleed over into the way you talk to them. And as we were discussing, for many of us, that way is not very skillful. So I know there are people who say you have to love yourself before you can love another. And, you know, I don't know about that. I have found it's just as true that if someone loves me, I love myself. So I don't know that they have to go in that in any particular order. But It does seem true that the more human I am, the more genuine I am, which is our euphemisms for softening and allowing, the less likely I am to weaponize my way of being against someone else. So that's really helpful. That's a really profound way to talk about it too. The less likely you are to weaponize your way of being against somebody else. Because we all do that, right? Like that is human nature. Mm -hmm. We are protective. We have reasons or we think we have reasons that we need to constantly be on the lookout or protecting ourselves. We're creatures of prey. Yeah. And we are accustomed and sometimes it's completely appropriate to place more attention on your hope. I hope things will work out for me. I wish this is what I want. This is what I need. Or your fear. This is what I don't want. This is what I have to guard against. It's very human and normal to prioritize hope and fear over the present moment. For me, it takes a practice to switch the priority. Priority is the present moment, and my hope and fear are there too. Like They're not ever going to not be there, but which one of those three is guiding my actions and my, and my conversation is you know, useful to me to investigate. When you're in this place of openness, I think you might even refer to it in your book as like a, a willing open heart. This is also where you're talking about being fearless, Yeah, it's not pretty. I'm not suggesting that you're saying it is, but... Not at all pretty. (laughs) No, I just... It can sound, these words, softening and open heart and allowing, and it can create this association with some kind of sweetness or niceness. And sometimes it's sweet and nice, but But sometimes sometimes it's also deep and profound. And it's that invitation or that opening lets in all the feelings and all the rage and all the sadness. And that's equally important. Yeah. 
it's just as often it's just a mess. And this is not a way to fix those messes or clean up a mess. It's a way to enter the mess and I, you know, be there with someone else. And anyway, I just want to make the point that this is not about fixing anything or making a perfected relationship. It's about being really human. Being really human in relationship with another person while you tolerate the discomfort, while you learn how to soften and be kind towards yourself and one another, even when you're having all the big feelings. Yeah. And, you know, this is where maybe it's another opening for us to talk a little bit about worthiness, because I think this is something that so many people struggle with. I certainly have many couples who come into my office and they don't feel cherished or they don't feel like they're good enough. And whether these ideas are being projected by their partner or they're coming from a deep place of shame that they hold within themselves, this is definitely one of the struggles that they are coming in with. And I know inherent worthiness is something that you talk a little bit about too. Yeah, it's a tough one because trying to feel worthy can become a part of the unworthiness show because you think, well, I should feel worthy and here's all the reasons I should. Oh, but I don't feel worthy. Now I feel really unworthy. I'm not even, you know, you can really beat yourself up with your intentions to stop beating yourself up and it's circular and whenever you try to stop doing something that you're already doing because you have a conceptual notion that it would be better if you could, it seems to deepen the tension. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is might sound weird, but if one, you know, if say myself, if I struggle with feelings of unworthiness, it seems to me to be more helpful to say, rather than saying, oh, you are worthy. Here's all the reasons that that you should think that, it's more helpful for me to say, maybe I am unworthy. Let me look at that. Is it true? What happens when I feel what it feels like to feel unworthy? Where does that go? Because, you know, the admonition to start where you are, first of all, you have no other choice. (laughs) You have to start where you are. You can't just suddenly be somewhere else. So if where you start is, I feel shame, then feel it and stop fighting. Relax with it. It doesn't feel good, but it seems to be more effective than trying to beat it down or fold it up or explain it away. And you don't have to be afraid of feeling shame or feeling unworthy because you're already demonstrating vast fearlessness by simply allowing yourself to feel it. You're establishing agency But when you get into this, I should feel unworthy, but I don't. But here's all the reasons I should. But here's all the reasons I don't. No one's going to win that fight. And you've relinquished agency. But when you can expand to include the whole fight, here's the parts of me that thinks I'm worthy. Here's the parts of me that thinks I'm not. Let me survey it all as if it were my kingdom. Then you have taken your seat. And it seems to be empowering, more empowering. Yeah, I love that explanation and that illustration of just how to be in it. When I think of the counter to that, of all the reasons I should, again, I'm going back to expectations and now I'm grasping at something. I'm getting myself into trouble again. Yeah. And then you notice that and then you beat yourself up for grasping and you're beating yourself up. It's elliptical (laughs) and and painful and unnecessary, optional. Yeah. So let's talk about this kind of brave, open-hearted, messy, allowing of all the places that we are and that we, things that we feel 
allowing of that big mess of life, of humanness, this gift of fearlessness that is such an invitation towards relationship at the same time. Yeah. Because I think this is perhaps, you know, in much of what I'm reading in your book, it's one of the primary ingredients of what it takes on one hand. It takes this fearlessness. It takes this willingness to open oneself up to the mess, to the everything of it, and to keep staying with it, to keep that awareness, to keep that attention. These are perhaps the things that it takes to have a present relationship. Yeah, it seems that staying attuned is the same thing as staying in. And sometimes you can't. You're like, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to. I'm done, tired. Well, then you could at least be aware of that and go, okay, I see that I'm not, I don't have the juice for it. And so I can make some decisions. Well, I've got to push myself or I'm just going to rest. But just awareness of what's unfolding. It seems that the root of fearlessness is curiosity rather than uh, prefab, you know, vision. But curiosity about what is happening now and what would happen if I did this. And that is predicated on openness, curiosity, and prefab are not compatible. So everybody knows how to be curious. So everybody can be fearless. I love that. That's just, it's so inviting to take a step outside of whatever box we find ourselves in. Yeah. I'm also struck that the opposite side of this, the place of being in fear, the place of not being curious, the place of these prefab ideas of these other places, they're more constricted, they're more closed off, they are more walled off. And just the, they hurt so much more. The hurt comes from, I think, perhaps even that constriction. Well, in the Buddhist view, suffering, anxiety, comes from the mind and body splitting. Like the body is doing one thing, but the mind goes somewhere else. Like the, your body wants to go to sleep, but your mind starts answering email. You know, that kind of very ordinary thing. Or your body or your being is in pain, but your mind wants to figure out the solution or think about something else. That is actually painful, the more painful. So anything that you can do to bring mind and body into the same place, which basically means feeling what you feel and is useful. And the constriction and the pain and fear, I know those things don't feel good. They're awful, but they're not a problem at all. The problem is being unwilling to feel those things. That's where problems really come in. So we're going to have fear, we're going to have constriction, we're going to be puny, we're going to be wrong, we're going to do stupid things. But remaining with yourself throughout is important, in my opinion. What advice or what practices might you outline for someone who is somewhat new to this way of thinking and wants to invite more of this openness, more of this fearlessness and attention and attunement, more of this just being with into their life and into their relationships. Where might you advise? I know you... For me, the practice of meditation, mindfulness awareness meditation, breath awareness meditation, that all synonyms for the same thing, that it is the practice of opening and being with and staying present and accommodating what you feel, and softening, and allowing, and fearlessness, that is what you are practicing when you're sitting there. And you're not practicing it so that you can be good at practicing it when you're sitting there. Like, it doesn't matter if you're good at meditation. 
by the way, just totally doesn't matter. What matters is that you're good at being yourself in your life. So the practice helps you to do that. It's custom made for that, but it's not for everyone. I mean, not everything, nothing is for everyone, but that's what I would recommend wholeheartedly is just learn to meditate from someone who has been trained to teach it and can teach it well. I think a lot of people start to try to learn meditation on their own and they give up pretty early thinking they're no good at it since they struggle to stay with their breath. Yeah. Well, nobody's good at it. So, and it doesn't matter if you are good at it. I'm not good at it. I've been doing it for 25 years and I have, you know, some things have gotten better on the cushion, but you know, you think, oh, in 25 years, it should be a lot better. It's much more incremental. But when I look at my life, that well, everything has changed. That's where you really want to look for the results. So yeah, you think I'm not doing it right because it's hard. Well, it is hard. It's boring. It is boring. I don't understand what is supposed to be happening. And I don't know how to look for what is happening. Completely reasonable. You know, that's why it's important to have a meditation teacher or a community or some friends, just someone to talk to about your practice because it's a spiritual practice and nobody knows what it's going to do because it looks different for everyone. So that's why I started my online community, The Open Heart Project. It was for a place to offer meditation instruction to people who don't know where to get it or haven't found a place they liked. So it's just easy. It's just simple. It's free. And it's a way to get support for your meditation practice. But there are many good teachers. And you know, I only know the Buddhist world. But there are many reputable places to go to learn. And there are apps. And some of them are really good. But it's hard to rely on an app, I think, for the spiritual part of the practice. For that, it seems that a community is needed. Well, a conversation is needed, a connection, and the ability to open oneself up and say, this is what it is for me. It seems like that's useful. And even if you never talk, but just being in a community somehow, I don't know, it's kind of weird how it works because meditation is so solitary. Why do you need to talk to anyone? But there are three jewels in the Buddhist world, three headlights on your vehicle, three guideposts, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And the Buddha just sort of means a connection to your own wakefulness. doesn't mean you worship a Buddha or anything. And Dharma means you connect to a path and you get teachings. And Sangha means you have a community. And all three of those qualities are important in creating a sustainable practice. So when you sit down to meditate, you automatically have a connection to your own wakefulness. So the Buddha, the first jewel, you got that one. But the other two often go uncultivated. So the path just means something starts to happen when you meditate and having some way of exploring that, whether by journaling or reading books or talking to people is very important. It's the utmost importance. And then Sangha community, weirdly, is the most important. If you want an ongoing practice, sit with others from time to time. I don't know why, but that's what seems to lock it down. So all Uh, three jewels. What's coming through to me is the energy you know, it's almost contagious. It's something that we, when you sit in a room with others, when you meditate together, there's something that there's a felt experience that goes beyond the internal experience or the even the isolating experience of being alone. Yeah, there's something very buoyant about it. And also, it's just too embarrassing to get up and leave. (laughs) (laughs) 
So one way or another, you're going to stay. <laughs> so I love how we're dancing in this conversation between these teachings on how to be in relationship and also how to be with ourselves and how to be with ourselves in community. Because I think in some ways, relationship is also a take on community. It's a smaller version, but it is a small community. Oh, that's a very interesting way of looking at it. I never thought about that. And yeah, that makes total sense. You're creating a community, a world, a, a family, a, a society. A society, even if it's just the two of you or yeah. however many. Yeah. It's, it's mm-hmm. Agreed. Your own little community. I agree. Susan, this has been really delicious, and I'm grateful to be in this conversation with you. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you, too. These are, I think, favorite subjects for both of us, so that's a delight. I could probably go on and find a lot more to talk about with you, but I'm also wanting to be respectful of your time and would love to invite you to share. I know you mentioned your community, your open-hearted community, and I want to include show notes that have links to all of these wonderful spaces. So where can our listeners find you and anything else that you want to share? Yeah, thank you. Well, my website is just my name, susanpiver.com. And that's where you could join the Open Heart Project if you want. It's free, as I mentioned, and I send out a meditation instructional video once a week on Mondays, 10 minutes it, preceded by a short talk, it's usually less than five minutes, about something connected to meditation. And if you want to connect in person, then places where I'm teaching and retreats I'm teaching are there too. So that's the best place, susanpiver.com. Wonderful. We'll include that in our show notes as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. You as well. I'm so inspired by so many of the things that Susan and I talked about. This piece that she shared with us about the root of fearlessness and how that's curiosity. And then I believe Susan said, everybody knows how to be curious. Therefore, everybody can be fearless. So go be fearless. Be fearless in love. Be curious in love and in connection. And um, remember that in order to be really human in a relationship with another person, you have to be able to tolerate discomfort and soften into it. And when you learn to be softened and kind towards yourself, you can also soften and be kind towards another, even in the presence of all the big feelings. I also wanted to let you know a little bit more about how you can work with me. I maintain my relationship therapy practice in New York, and I also run intensive couples retreat experiences. You can learn more about both at connectfulness.com. You can also join my connectfulness community. It's a virtual community and it's totally free. That's at connectfulness.com community. And if you're a therapist in private practice, then check out the connectfulness collective. Come root in with us over at connectfulness.com collective. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. A few extra little gratitudes. I'd like to thank Christy Hausler, my behind-the-scenes amazing podcasting team, Sarah and Chris Farris at Kidney Stone Studio for the delicious soundtrack music, Blue Rabbit Studios for the cover art, and please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcasting platform. Stay tuned for our next episode with Dr. Steven Snyder.
Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events.